0: Now it is time for news with my dad. A show we talk about the news with my dad, and on the telephone line playing the role of my dad is in fact my dad, the star of our show, Joe Smith. Pop, how you doing?
1: I've lots to say, and I know we had, uh, uh, we're on a short lease this morning because we've got some great interviews coming, so we should get at it.
0: What's the biggest story you're paying attention to? This is a show. We talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff. When it's unimportant, we try to say so. Dad typically takes the first turn because this is a show we take turns. Dad, do you have a shout-out?
1: I have four shout-outs. Oh, oh talk about...
0: Shout-out
1: shout-out and the first one relates to what, in, to me, is, is the neatest story going right now and that was President Obama in Philadelphia where he departed from decades maybe centuries of habit precedent where retired ex-presidents do not attack sitting presidents and he decided he'd had enough and he was absolutely wonderful And the best was when he made fun of DDT's bank account in China and said, can you, can you imagine if I'd had a bank account in China? And then wondered, Maybe Fox News would take an interest in that. They would call him Beijing Barry. It was absolutely wonderful. Then I want to shout out for Georgia voter Steve Davidson who said as he stood in line for something like six hours to vote said my parents have been fighting for the right to vote for decades if I have to wait six or seven hours that's my duty I'll do it happily my compliments Steve Davidson. What a shout-out for Pope Francis, who in an encyclical has said that civil unions between LGBTQ folks are okay. And finally, I want a shout-out for David Hausman in a Stanford study who has discovered in studying as reported in the National Academy of Sciences Journal, that sanctuary cities don't have increases in crime because they are providing sanctuary. My compliments to publishing that study right now. And before we dive into the news, I just want to acknowledge there's this passing. Tab is dead at 60. 60.
0: Well, folks, thank you for joining the show. That's all the time we've got for news with my dad. Record-setting number of shout-outs. Well, Dad, Tab, you're right. No more Tab. I was a Tab drinker as a kid because I was hyperactive. And so it was a good thing for me not to be on the sugar as much. So Tab was the thing I got. Now no more Tab for anybody. But by the way, I didn't know where to get Tab these days anyhow. But no no more way to get any Tab anywhere anyhow. Yep. Well, Dad, this is a show we talk about the news. What is the most important thing you're tracking? I wanted to get your response first to this. Joe Biden just announced that he would set up a commission to respond to the question, to analyze the question of what should be done with the Supreme Court. And it seems to me this gives him an answer because the question that he was getting from the press, the question he was getting from uh, Donald Trump, was, will you expand the court? Will you expand the court? And it's a smart question to ask him because it uh, puts him in a tricky spot. If he says yes, they can pillory him for trying to change the institution. If he says no, then people who are looking at what's happening at the institution will say, wait a minute, aren't you going to stand up and fight? And now he's got the answer of the commission, which seems like a pretty smart answer. Did you catch that, and did you have a reaction?
1: I think it is a very smart thing, particularly if the commission's assignment is not just to consider whether or not the, the court might be expanded but what else what other ways might there be to improve the likelihood of a balanced ideally an unprejudiced but in the light of what's going on right now which I want to talk about later this morning is perhaps a forlorn hope a, a truly nonpartisan court and and there are other things that could be done. There's the there's the idea that uh, you couldn't serve more than 18 years, and that every president got to appoint one. There, there 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 are other things that could be done, and and you could and you could address the constitutional challenge that they serve for life at letting them be circuit judges when they're moved off the court, or even district judges if that were their choice when they were moved off the court. There, there are other things that could be done, and, and I think that was a smart thing to do.
0: All right, Dad. What's the biggest story you're paying attention to?
1: Well, the, the, the biggest story I'm paying attention to is what's going to happen tonight. <laughs> and I am Debate looking tonight. forward to both anticipation and trepidation as to what it is, and I'm wondering how... Kristen Welker will do and what will she ask? I'm wondering, for example, since one of the subjects she has named is going to be addressed is global warming, will she say to the president, and she really should, in 2016 you said global warming was a hoax. Is that still your position? And if it is not, what is your position and what do you think the federal government should do in the next four years? to address it that question just cries out to be
0: asked the focus is on international policy what are some other predictions Dad, you have or what are some other questions either you anticipate or that you hope that get answered (laughs) well
1: uh, that that that's what i most hope will will be addressed and then another question that really needs to be asked mr president you have been promising a health care plan for quite some time. Could you tell us tonight what is your health care plan, or at least could you give us important aspects of whatever that plan is going to be?
0: That We're talking about the presidential debate. Trump will, of course, criticize Biden on China. Uh, very often the counterpunch is bigger than the punch. Now now, uh, Biden has a response. Yeah, but I don't have a Chinese bank account. Uh, Trump will call it a Russian hoax. Trump will have a chance to talk America first. Uh, he will have a chance to call Biden a globalist. Uh, the What are the most important uh, trying to play either side? If you were going to either try to pretend you're Trump in the debate or pretend you're Biden in the debate, any uh, policies you'd want to push, any arguments you'd want to advance, any points you'd want to make. Pick either side.
1: It is very, very difficult, if not impossible for me to put myself in DDT's shoes because this is a person who really doesn't have any vision or policies for him to talk about. And so what I, what I expect him to do is to... Once again, once, the, once both mics are on, to continue to interrupt and to bully, because I just don't think he can help himself. But if, if I were Biden, the most important thing, I think, for Biden is to keep smiling. And when DDT makes charges and, and gets on a rant, to just keep smiling, smiling condescendingly and not at any time losing his cool and at at at, uh, at some point looking for the opportunity to say uh, to say Kristen, i'm not going to rebut on that because i don't believe that what he just said deserves any attention and just smile when he says that i think he, if if he can if he can behave in that way i think he will get under DDT skin so much that DDT will not be able to keep from doing a reprise of the first debate.
0: There are a couple of pieces that I would advance, other than uh, other than smiling, or in addition to you know how I set my face, uh, there are a few things I would advance if I'm in Biden's shoes, and I even expect that he will. Uh, and then a couple, you know, one or two things that I hope he does that I have no reason to expect that he will or won't. The first is to talk explicitly, and I'll be interesting interested in the words that he chooses to make to help elucidate the topic. But the post-war global power consensus, sort of the pro-democracy uh, coalition around the world that emerged after the defeat of the Nazis, that the erosion and destruction of that, both things, have in my judgment been the uh, top international priority of Vladimir Putin, the top international priority of his confederates, the top uh, international priority even of some global financial oligarchs who don't really like the idea of a pro-democracy coalition around the world because that pro-democracy coalition might even do some things on occasion to constrain capital or at least regulate it and put them in jail for doing horrible illegal things. Uh, So that is one thing, I expect he will talk about American influence and making sure that we rebuild, I'm confident he will talk about rebuilding American relationships and American prestige abroad. Uh, what I hope he'll then also do is connect it to back home. I'm hoping that he will put it in the context of, and this is, I suspect it's more me talking than anticipating what he'll say, but I'm hoping he will talk about the war on democracy. There's a war on democracy abroad and there's a war on democracy at home. I'm hoping he will connect what's happening abroad to what is happening for people at home, because most of the issues, you know, from climate change to wealth disparities uh, to to COVID nineteen, most of the things that are impacting people, most of the things that Trump doesn't want to talk about, are happening right here in the United States.
1: If I if I could give one way him, if to if I could give him a theme that that he should weave in every way he can, agreeing with what you've just said a hundred percent. He should say what ultimately this is about is are we going to maintain in the United States of America true freedom and true liberty because you cannot really have freedom if you you are not free if you don't have enough to eat. You are not free if you don't know how, to, if you don't have a place to go to to get out of the rain. you. It, it And I, I am reminded... Every time I think about this, I am reminded of the disaster that I thought we, we witnessed. I personally witnessed because I was there. When Kerry gave his acceptance speech at the nominating convention in Boston, and he talked about stem cells. And when Bush gave his acceptance speech, he talked about freedom and I said if you think stem cells is going to prevail over freedom you are making such a mistake and there's just so many you, you can really tie so much of this into the necessity global warming if we don't address climate change people are going to be people on the coast are going to be washed out hardly freedom The, the and, and worldwide you're going to have people washed out and moving and there's going to be war and there's nothing that is more destructive of liberty than war
0: i forgot what i was going to say uh, i remember what i was going to say uh the that i hope it'll connect what's happening internationally to what's happening here and the and connecting the assault on democracy to connecting the war on democracy that is happening try to erode the uh, federal, uh, the, the excuse me, international power structure, the pro-democracy power structure and then connecting that what's happening with voter suppression and what's happening with the effort to try to take away the power of democratically small d elected power. And then connect that to and then and, and it gives you the hook, right? Because what Biden wants to do is Biden wants to talk about domestic stuff. Trump wants to avoid domestic stuff because he's been the worst president in history and we are doing worse against COVID than just about anybody. He don't want to talk about that. He does not want to talk about what's happening to the economy right now. He wants to talk about anything other than that. The way Biden can bring it back is here's what happens when you go against democracy is that then people support something like health care. But then you try to install the Supreme Court that will take away your health care. And I hope that Biden will weave it in without getting too far afield and seeming like he's not addressing the topic, address the topic to make very clear how what we're doing abroad and the project the president engaged in is hurting us here at home as well as abroad. We have on the line State Senator Kim Thatcher. There are two candidates running to replace Bev Clarno's Oregon Secretary of State. One of them is now joining us. Republican State Senator represents District 13 from Hillsborough to Kaiser. She's been there in the Oregon legislature for about 15, a little over 15 years, running against Democratic State Senator Shamia Fagan for Secretary of State. Senator Thatcher, good morning. How you doing?
2: Good morning, Jefferson. Great to talk to you. It's
0: been a long time.
2: It has.
0: How goes the campaign? How are you enjoying it?
2: Enjoying? I've never enjoyed campaigns, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> but I enjoy doing the work. Uh,
0: how ugly is the campaign betwixt you and Shamia? How hard fought, or how easy?
2: It, you know, it's it's not it's not easy doing a, a statewide campaign in COVID for sure. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of an unusual situation. Does
0: it make it? Does it make it a little easier? I mean, the Republican base around the state tends to be more rural and exurban, of course. And one potential advantage of this time is that uh, such a higher percentage of people are getting used to mobile conferencing that what are your sort of around the state barnstorming tours looking like? Are you doing that with Zoom calls? Is that making some elements of the campaign easier? Are there also Wi-Fi connectivity issues or, you know, not everybody's got laptops. That's certainly true here. Not everybody who people are trying to reach. I'm sitting here in Portland. Not everybody in Portland's got a, you know, got a good Wi-Fi set up. has the campaign been like for you?
2: A lot of Zooming, and I'm glad for that technology, though you cannot be meeting in person, and I actually have been doing that as well, I've been going to the land of phase two, since it's a little little hard to meet in the metro area right now in in any substantial fashion, but um, those calls have been Zoom, and um, then in-person stuff out in eastern Oregon, southern Oregon, here and there, everywhere, it's easy, it's nice to be able to use technology.
0: You've talked about how it's hard running as a Republican in Oregon. You've also uh, taken the same position as uh, Dennis Richardson that you don't want to talk about who you're voting for, uh, for president. Uh, and and his argument, I think your argument is, yeah, because you know you don't want to, uh, you do seem like you're playing favorites in a campaign and it's a good it's a good argument it does though seem like it's a convenient way to avoid telling uh republican trump supporters that you don't want to support trump or a convenient way to tell those voters you're trying to cross over that you are in fact voting for trump who'd you vote for in 2016 you did vote for trump then maybe yeah
2: well, here's the thing. I did go to the convention in 2016, and I was upholding. And I, I have to tell you, he was not my first choice. He was not my second. He was not my tenth. <laughs> and I, I went to the convention to uphold the will of the, the Republican voters. There were going to be, or there were rumors of some antics that might happen, and they were they were concerned about that. They wanted somebody who would who would actually do what they said they would do, and that's why I was able to go.
0: So you were you were a delegate in 2016 to the Republican National Convention, and there was there. I remember we were covered at the time. There were there was some uh, some rumor that there might try to be a convention play to block the uh, block, the uh, Trump presidential nomination. Was there any when you were at the convention? Did you see any whiff of that? Were there any people trying to push around to see if they could get some states to to be what was it called? Faithless uh, electors or whatever?
2: There, there was a whiff of that. There were some strange things going on with other states. It seems like maybe Utah. I, I can't remember exactly, but there there was some controversy, certainly.
0: And how does that work? Do you end up getting word? Because I've been, I, I, I haven't been a delegate, of course, to the Republican National Convention. I have been one to the Democratic National Convention. And what I know, and my guess is there's some similarities. Uh, the and what happens? Do you get word in the morning of what's happening? You sit with the delegation in Oregon, and and they're announced. You have breakfast together, and they do announcements, and people come around to give speeches. sort of, and then you end up going over to the convention hall. Is it the same sort of drill?
2: Yeah, it's kind of like that. You're you're sitting kind of in on the floor of this big convention center in a big bowl, and and as far as getting word of any anti I mean, there's a lot of people there, and so there's the rumor mill is you know quite quite uh, efficient <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of how some of those things happen but yeah we just kind of you just get together my favorite part was the balloon drop at the end and I said that I think on my Facebook page too <laughs> um, that was kind of fun but that was, that was the best part of the whole thing
0: what impact do you have and I'll I'll get right back to Secretary of State's race but what, uh, what impact do you think that uh, Donald Trump has had on the Republican Party
2: what impact has he had yeah uh I don't know. I mean, he's he's a controversial figure wherever you turn. So it's hard to <laughs> hard to say. Uh, you can you can just read the read the papers and listen to the radio and and. Uh, well, I'm more interested TV in your view. And,
0: like I know what okay. the I know what the newspapers say. I know what I say. But uh, but I'm more yeah. interested. But you've been a you've been a Republican uh, activist and elected official for a long time now. You've uh, you've been the uh, one of the leaders of the one of the representatives for. Uh, the ALEC organization, the organization that works on legislative policy. Uh, and I mean, you are, you've you been a delegate to the National Convention. I mean, you are engaged in the Republican project. It's a project you care about. And, and now there is a leader of that project. Uh, and and, I, and I'm wondering, and, and you can give pros and cons, or you can say, well, here's a couple of good things, here's a couple of bad things, but I'm vastly more interested in your perspective on that question than I am on, I don't know, some some urban journalist
2: you know i i was really hoping i could talk about secretary state race a little bit more i mean national stuff i have really been so focused on what i'm doing on my race that i i can miss the local stories in my newspaper sometimes so i am not i'm not paying attention too much to the national stuff right now so i i just i am really focused on being secretary of state and I want to be the secretary of state of Oregon. I don't want to be the secretary of state of Republicans. I have told my 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 own party, even during the primary, that I am not going to be playing favorites. I'm not going to be uh, trying to uh, look at some of your projects to the detriment of looking at other projects that people would like to have looked at from other parties and, and from other parts of the state that you may not agree with. I And I'm not going to be... Uh, you know, administering the laws that the secretary of state has to administer in favor of one side or the other. I don't think that's right. And that's what I've stressed to them. In fact, I told them I'm probably going to be ticking you off (laughs) sometimes. So, I mean, that's, that's really what I've been focused on. I've been trying to not focus so much on, you know, any of the other candidates right now.
0: So I hear, so I hear the argument and, where does that start and where does that finish? Where does sort of the desire to be a nonpartisan player as a candidate for Secretary of State and as an office holder Secretary of State where does that start and when does that stop? What sort of things do you decide to show up at? Where do you decide to campaign uh, and where do you decide not to? what's the kind of stuff that feels within bounds of that sort of nonpartisan po- po- uh, posture and wheres you say now I got to stay away
2: well, first of all, it is not a nonpartisan position. It is we are running under the banner of parties right now, and so I'm go where I go where I'm invited, and I and I can get the word out about my campaign. I even showed up at a a Grey Panthers forum that was going to be in outside of Portland State. I did not think, you know, <laughs> that it would be a very friendly territory for me, but I, I showed up and course, nobody else did. It was right after the, the the fires, and there was a lot of smoke and things, and so they must have canceled it. And I didn't get the memo. But anyhow, I'm showing up where I can I can uh, promote my campaign, get people to vote for me, talk to their friends, neighbors, coworkers, family. You know, the the regular drill. And wherever that is, is where I'm going. And it can be Republican events for sure. But I know a lot of these Republican events are also inviting um, everybody. They're not just inviting Republicans.
0: So you got so if you go to the you go to Jeff Krupp's thing the uh, you go to the uh, you go to the Oregon Liberty Coalition you'll go there you get votes but even there you'll want to talk about what's happening in the Secretary of State's race let's talk about the Secretary of State's race what do you think your what are the most important three differences let's say pick one if you want between you and uh, between you and Shania Fagan well
2: one big difference would be experience I've been a steady leader in my community and since I was elected 16 years ago to the House, I've been representing, and then up until the Senate, uh, now in my second term, I've been representing pretty much the same group of people, barring what happened during redistricting with a little bit of you know nibbling around the edges. Things didn't change greatly after the last redistricting, but it's yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> That's one of the biggest differences. She's been in the House for two sessions or excuse me, two terms and then a half a term now in the Senate. She seems to like to go from one office to the next without really finishing the previous one. She seems to like to look for that next higher office. That's one of the biggest differences. I do claim to want to serve as a nonpartisan. She has Democrat for Secretary of State all over her signs. And she was saying in, the, in the, the, the primary, her Democratic primary, that she thinks it's really important that we have a Democrat secretary of state. I have been saying I, there there were Democrats running in the primary that I, I think might have made really good secretaries of state and would have been nonpartisan and would have been even-handed, but I don't think that in my opponent.
0: Do you think Secretary of State should be a nonpartisan position then?
2: I, I would not, I would not put a stop to that. I think it would be a good idea to have the Secretary of State be a nonpartisan position. Now it would be interesting how that would work with the fact that it's the de facto Lieutenant Governor, but boy, it would not be interesting to have a nonpartisan governor. <laughs> you know, that, that could be interesting. But anyway, I, I was able to get the Independent Party of Oregon nomination. My opponent also ran to get that nomination because their primary was taking place during the same time that the Republican and Democratic primaries were taking place in May, I was able to get that. I was able to get the independent party endorsement.
0: When a president of the United States, or, and, I, and, I, and this, I think, does directly link to what's happening here, and, it, and I recognize it, it, it's a good instinct, and I appreciate the instinct not to let the current president suck up all of the of things we talk about, but it does, we'll put, this will put you in a tricky position potentially. If you have a president who is saying vote by mail is fraudulent, what responsibility does that put on a Republican nominee for te- secretary of state to speak out loudly on that topic and call to challenge what's happened, frankly, with much of my extended family who thinks that it's something that should be bagged who didn't know, anything, didn't know much, that much about vote by mail, but now they've heard uh, the president of the United States and Fox News talk about it. They think that it's a fraudulent system. What say you and what responsibility does it put on you or would it put on you as secretary of state?
2: Well, in Oregon, as you know, we've been doing this for a long time. We've, we've got lo- tons of safeguards in place. We've figured it out. We've, we've got a really good system. I think it behooves us to also look at ways of improving it. What I don't know what Trump is talking about. I mean, <laughs> I think that it can be done well, and I think we are exam- an example of doing it well and doing it right in, in our state, and I've been saying that. Um, but I have had concerns. I have had people... Over the years that I have been in the legislature, I have had a lot of people complain to me about different things. I have not been able to see any proof. I have not been able to see, you know, where the things that they've been bringing up are a problem. I maybe I'll have a different perspective and and ability to look into it as a Secretary of State, but I I can say that without equivocation especially after having conversations with the former Secretary of State, Dennis Richardson, who has more integrity than anybody I've ever met, we don't have a problem. We have a good system in place here in Oregon. That's that's what I can say, and I think Oregon can serve as that mentor to other states that want to bring it on, and I would also emphasize it did take us a couple of years to get it going and get it right at the beginning. Um, now, I don't think since we've invented the wheel now that other states would necessarily need to reinvent the wheel and take two years themselves, but I think it might take more than a few weeks to get it up and running in, a, in the right fashion.
0: When Do we have any polling in this race? Do we know where this is going? And nobody likes to answer that question, but I am curious. I'm looking at endorsements <laughs> right now. I'm looking at money raised. looks like you raised about $640,000. Uh, I might want to ask a little about that, but yeah, what do we know about uh, what do we know about this? We've now had two straight Republicans as Secretary of State, but one elected, one uh, who was Dennis Richardson. Uh, what do we know about the? What do we know about what you're up against in winning this thing?
2: Well, I can say that what is it, sixty to sixty-five percent of the state is is not Democrat, and then more than that is not Republican. It's mostly those people in the middle, the people that are yeah. nonpartisan, that don't want to have anything to do with the parties. Those are the people that I need to talk to. Uh, as far as polling, I—I I mean, who knows about polls? <laughs> yeah. mean, um, you you want to believe them when they look good, and then you don't want to believe them when they look bad. So, um, I don't know. It's—I think it's a toss-up right now between my opponent and I, but
1: she's um, she's working hard. Uh, and, and I, I want to say, uh, ask a
0: question. Oh yeah, Dad, go ahead.
1: I'm going to change the subject from the race to the office. One of the perhaps least understood, but very important roles the Secretary of State has is one of the three members of the State Land Board, and the state owns a lot of property, and the State Land Board dictates how that property is going to be managed, what's going to be done with it. Are are there any things that you are particularly concerned or that you really hope to accomplish for, for state lands if you are privileged to sit on the land board?
2: Right now we have an obligation to utilize these lands for the benefit the high you know, I don't remember the exact wording, but for the best benefit of Oregonians, and not, and to balance it with ecological concerns. I think that jobs and the environment are not an either/or proposition that we can, we can balance the values of Oregonians and put these lands to the best use of Oregonians. So the Elliott, um, I was there this summer. It was one of the things I was able to do. <laughs> yeah,
1: the Social Elliott distancing is, is, is pretty easy to out problem. in the
2: Elliott. But, uh, you know, there, there have been people mentioning that they would not sell it to an outside interest other than the state. And that's not even an option. Um, My opponent says, you know, I'm not going to sell it. Just rest assured. Well, it's not an option. And there is a proposal for OSU to turn it into a research forest. And I've talked to some of the people who are creating, uh, you know, creating the proposal to to do that. And I, I think that's a good idea. It's just too bad that we can't utilize what we have for, you know, in place for the common school fund to actually fund our schools and it's too bad that we cannot sustainably um, harvest the trees put them to work yet re- maintain uh, recreational areas and you know make Oregon Oregon I mean everybody loves to go out in the woods and nobody wants to mow down all the trees so I think it is good to just keep those things in balance jobs and in the environment so I would think it would be helpful to have the stakeholders, the very stakeholders of our land get together and maybe come up with how to accomplish that. <laughs> you know, Maybe you know, have the, the recreational users, have the, um, you know, the environmental proponents and the people who work off the land get get together. I don't know, maybe that's not possible, but it seems like when Jefferson and I worked on the transparency bill, we were able to figure it out, and I think that can be done.
0: The uh, we we'll got some texts, and there is one on that topic. And you've probably already given your answer. But why? Sh- uh, why should we believe she isn't partisan? She's backed by Timber Unity and other far right groups. Does Timber Unity get a bad rap? Do you think that the do you think the timber harvesting is getting a bad rap in Oregon right now?
2: Uh, well, let me just go back to what you said about Timber Unity being a far right group. That is not the case. In fact, so many people within timber unity they're they're, what they have in common is uh family-owned businesses small businesses large businesses but they're business people and you have you have people who have been are and still are members of every party and they they are proponents of jobs but that's yeah so i don't (laughs) i don't consider them a far-right group just because they were opposed to one of the bigger bills that uh, came from one side of the aisle last time, but it's not, you know, I don't, I don't see no, I, that. So I, appreciate,
0: I appreciate the response. I know it was actually directly responsive to my question. I was reading the text and then asking if they get a ba- if you think timber unity gets a bad rap, and it sounds like you do think they get a bad rap.
2: Yeah, I do. I think they get uh, classified as this, well, like, like you just did, <laughs> as a far right group. They are a group of people I I know people who are independents, people who had never voted. I know people who are, you know, of every party in there, and they are they're concerned about yep. the direction that um, their livelihoods would be going um, with some of the the policies that are being taken
0: on. And I I want to pause to, uh, I want to pause to say thank you and to be clear, like I, I might characterize it that way at some point, but I, I, but what I was doing was just reading the question that we received as it was sent in, but I want to say thank you and also thank you to your terrific, I'm not wrapping the interview to be clear, but the, uh, uh, and also thank you to Don, who is your tremendously effective uh, 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 cohort uh, that in having this conversation, because I think one of the, one of the key things we do have to have, if we're going to, if we're going to stitch together, maintain our democracy we do have to have is uh, an ability for people to communicate, including communicate candidly about difference and find areas of commonality. So I really appreciate you taking this time. Uh, we've got, how would you have voted on the last land board vote on the Elliott? I heard you say we've got to find a balance between uh, between jobs and the environment. It doesn't have to, have to be either or. Uh, there was a vote before the Elliott. Uh, how would you have voted then?
2: How would I have voted on the Elliott back then? You know, that was about 10,522 issues ago. I I really don't remember all the details of it, to be honest. Uh, I just know that um, you just have to take in the information and make the best decisions that you can, given the information that you have at the time. So it's I can't. I can't say really, but sure. I do think it's important that we do get a commission of stakeholders together and, and get that information from all sides, get the, the stakeholders together and, and try to figure out the best way forward for Oregon as a whole and not just for one part of Oregon, one interest group of Oregon.
0: Do you think there ought to be? Would you support a national redistricting uh, uh, commission, national redistricting reform? I think you're on record saying that you want it for the state. Uh, do you think every state should do that? how do you how, what are your thoughts about redistricting?
2: My thoughts on redistricting, having gone through it in two thousand and eleven and seeing how it just wasn't a great process at all i I really um, after that two thousand eleven session and learning about different proposals to bring in independence or you know, there are proposals talking about having retired judges. There are proposals talking about having just this random group of people from a jury pool. I mean, just different types of things. I like the plan that is being was being put forward in Initiative Petition 57 that didn't quite make it. It's a plan that had been worked on for years, and it starts back when Secretary of State Dennis Richardson was in office. He brought together a plan or a group of people, and I think it included, you know, people uh you know just very d- distinct and different groups of people working on a plan that and so about 85 percent of that plan is in the initiative petition 57 so what i said from the beginning regarding that initial petition petition is that i would if it didn't make it to the ballot that if i became secretary of state and it would make it you know the redistricting plan wasn't agreed to in the legislature or somehow made it up to the desk of the secretary of state i was not going to be sitting in the closet with a red sharpie and (laughs) drawing lines as i wanted to see them i was going to be implementing what was in the initiative petition 57 with the independent redistricting and all the parameters and and you know things that they put on that
0: Uh, dad anything you wanted to follow up on on redistricting otherwise go ahead
1: Let me say, the thing that inspires me to ask this question is reading the the fact that the Supreme Court ruled yesterday of 5 to 3 to to uphold the Secretary of State in Alabama who has told county clerks that they are not permitted to have drive-up voting. That uh, there's no law in Alabama one way or the other, and the Secretary of State said no. I, I'm not asking you to comment on that, but it does inspire me to ask. I, I'm wondering what you see as the interface. Do you see any any opportunity for help, or or is it just hands off? What is your view as to the what the relationship should be between the state that is responsible for state for statewide okay. office, for well, example, and counties that I, I think. Th- I'm sorry.
2: Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, so when it comes to the relationship with the county clerks, I, I think one of the best features of Oregon elections is that we don't have a centralized, you know, vote system where everybody's logging into the same system. We have 36 separate elections, and the county clerks are, of course, in charge of them. So we have 36 elections going on around our state. The Secretary of State has the rules and the, the county clerks uh, adhere to them, given their circumstances and their building parameters and their population, all these different things that they are very aware of. And I, I think it's important to work with them, but they are, they are, uh, they are in charge of their elections. I mean, ultimately. So um, if there's, I think it's important to have that close relationship and not mow over the top of them and say you must do this, but work with them and figure out ways of making things more secure. I do think it would behoove us to look at every step of the elections process, make sure it is as uh, secure and uh, you know good as it can be. But uh, you know, we, we people have to have faith and trust in the security of our system. But ultimately, it's the, it's the county clerks that are in charge of elections within their county.
0: Let's talk let's talk about let's talk about money uh, in politics right now on the ballot is uh, a chance for voters to make clear the Oregon Constitution allows for limits to campaign contributions. That'll mean that's going to go if that passes and looks pretty good. uh, That's going to go to the legislature. Uh, where if you don't win, the, where and you're going to engage it one way or another, right? You're going to engage it either as a state senator or you're going to engage it as, the, uh, as Oregon Secretary of State where you won't have a vote, but you'll have a voice. Uh, right now, the federal limits are like $2,400. Anybody, but that also means per spouse, per primary in general. So it really, or maybe it's $2,600. So anyway, it means it basically means what, 10, 11 grand uh, is the limit for uh, in in federal races do you think that level is too high? What level do you think the limit should be for contributions to candidates for legislative races or statewide office in Oregon?
2: Yeah, I, su- I support 107. Uh, I think it it's something that the Oregon electorate is in the mood for. They don't like all the money in politics right now. What that level is, that's a really good question. That's why I think it would be who... I would like to have some influence on this, the legislation in that I will, you know, whether the legislature puts it together or the Secretary of State's office puts it together, but I would like to have a multi-partisan commission of people and good government folks like League of Women Voters, Common Cause, you know, the people that want, that really keep a close eye on how our elections are run, on how what that should look like. I know that setting limits too low can really disadvantage challengers and make it easier for incumbents you know that's kind of a not the direction i would think we would want to go it can also uh, make it more challenging for minor third party candidates so i don't know what that looks like i think it would be important to get that perspective or those different perspectives from the the different parties and uh, good government groups
1: when that amount is finally determined assuming assuming that the amendment that the constitutional amendment passes and the legislature then does decide on it do you think that the legislation that is passed should have a cola that is should have an automatic adjustment based upon cost of living so that they don't have to come back every couple of every couple of years and re-vote what the amount is that's an interesting idea and that that <laughs> that
2: that isn't it uh, that's a really good idea actually i i wouldn't mind seeing that
0: we got a question in from a listener. We got several. Uh, what are your, And this one reminds me of an article I read as a political science student at the University of Oregon. And I don't know if you'll have a thought on it or not, but I'll pass along the question. If you don't have a thought on it, I'll move to the next one. What are your thoughts on changing voting districts? And rather than and, and making voting districts tied to watersheds, any thoughts on that?
2: Wow, had not never thought of that. Well, the the voting districts, and I think you're talking about redistricting, uh, where the House and Senate and congressional seats would be. Right now, there are procedures within the Constitution and within our statutes that we would need to follow. And that's, I don't think, one of them, but I'm sure it can be considered as part of the whole picture.
0: The Rajneeshies, uh, a- after the, after the Rajneeshies tried to steal an election, uh, and where was it, elk? Uh, they, uh, antelope. Antelope, <laughs> I'm wrong. My wrong cloven hoofed beast. Uh, after <laughs> Rajneesh tried to steal election antelope, uh, Nora used that as an opportunity to put in place a uh, voter registration deadline that is well in advance of the voting day. Uh, I am, of course, a supporter of same day registration and think that it is somewhat absurd that we wait until the marketing campaign has really begun. And just before that, we cut off the time that people who might respond to that marketing campaign can register. And that means that you know fewer people do. Now, we've got automatic voter registration now, or we've got Motor Voter in Oregon now, so it's, it's a little different now. Do you, are you on record about same-day voter registration? Are you on record on or even on moving the deadline closer to Election Day?
2: Well, of course, we would have to change the constitution to do that. I, I'm okay with thinking about moving it. I don't want to go with the same day voter registration right now because I have talked to some of these um, rural county clerks and they've talked about how there have been times when others since the Rajneeshees have tried to bring in people to try to sway an election, you know, in these small. Uh, at least less populated counties, that would be you know easy to do, just bringing in a busload of folks. But um yeah, I, I think that's certainly something we can discuss. I'm certainly not going to slam it down. Is there's uh, no way, no how, ever? But so you'd be opposed. Um,
0: you'd be opposed the same to same day registration. You're open to the argument about what the deadline should be. Did I get that right?
2: Yes, that would be correct.
0: We got another question. Uh, Did you say the other day you want more drop boxes versus using the U.S. Postal Service used to uh, due to postage costs? Is that did somebody uh, catch that correctly?
2: Well, we okay. So when they've uh, this this year, let me just say they set aside one point seven million dollars for postage for the elections, and it used to be that sixty percent of voters put their ballots in a in a drop box you know, the, the official drop boxes within their counties. or And then 40% were mailing them. Well, all we did was now just change the dynamic where you have 60% of the people mailing them and then 40% putting them in drop boxes. I, I do want to make drop boxes more widely available. I would rather have spent $1.7 million making those more accessible for, for, for people.
1: I, I would like to brag, yesterday I deposited my youngest sons and my ballot in the drop box at the Multnomah County office simply to save the state a buck.
0: Want to ask the uh, well, let me ask this. Let me ask this, Senator. Is there a topic you wanted to talk about that I failed to ask? What's something that you're wanting to focus on in the campaign that you think is getting underappreciated and underrecognized?
2: Well, I do think it's real important that uh, I continue what Dennis Richardson did with these audits that don't just look at things that are Republican, but look at what concerns people around the state, such as what happened in uh, northeast Portland with bullseye glass and uh, the Department of uh, Environmental Quality and what, what was going on with air quality monitoring and all that. So he did an audit and then brought some of the recommendations to the legislature and the legislature responded appropriately by um, giving the the EQ the resources they needed. But see, right now, though, I think we have some big challenges in our state, such as, well, the response to COVID. It's, it's caused a lot of challenges, uh, not the least of which is the employment situation. But thankfully, the employment department is now under audit. Um, that started recently. Um, but we have kitchen table school going on. We have moms having to quit their jobs, kids sitting at home. A lot of kids not even able to log onto the internet to do school or even have the equipment to be able to log into the internet. So there are some gaps happening and there are kids falling behind. And at the same time we've just boosted education funding. Um, Well the goal was to boost it by a couple billion dollars during the biennium. So where is that money going? I would really like to put in a permanent team of auditors to help schools um, make sure they're focusing their, their dollars, the dollars that taxpayers are giving them on the classroom and, you know, helping kids actually succeed. Our schools have been a mess, and that's why that, uh, that Student Success Funding Act passed. People wanted to see their schools improve, but now the challenge with COVID, and there's no end in sight, we really need to figure out a better way forward. Give parents' choices, help them, you know, deal with the situation in the best way.
0: Was defunding the, you brought up Bullseye Glass, was defunding the the DEQ a bad move? Was shrinking its staff levels uh, bad for uh, protecting environmental quality?
2: Well, apparently it was. They did not have the proper resources to be able to keep an eye on things like they should have been.
0: Well, I want to say thank you again so much, Senator Thatcher. Any closing word you've got? Anything I should have asked that I didn't
2: anything you should well a whole ton of thing it's been fun talking with you jefferson and i just really want to uh let people know i've been spending most of my last 16 years working on good government issues just like when we work together on the transparency bill that i tout all the time it's one of those like unknown secrets out there that we have this transparency site there's a lot of improvements that still can be made on it but those are things I've been working on. I should ask you about that. I
0: know lectures. we've got and we've got forget my interruption, but it's it's on your topic. But, but I should I should mention that if you you meant Well, you mentioned it already, so I don't need to mention it. But what changes do you think should be made to the transparency site? My biggest plug would be not only talking about the costs of government, but also talking about some of the progress that's being made in programs uh, doing a little bit like uh, used to be done with Oregon Progress Board. What changes do you think ought to be made to the transparency site in Oregon?
2: Well, I think it needs to be more user-friendly, first of all. I think it would be better if it was searchable and you didn't have to, you know, figure out which database to be looking in and have to open up all these different databases to be able to get the information. Um, Those would be the biggest things. Now, as far as putting context on things, I think that's for others, but having the information there that's searchable and... um, you know mashable where you can get different things different data sets and 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 figure out the best way to you know match them up and see correlations and find things that need maybe change in our government um i think those are some of the biggest changes i would like to see
0: kim thatcher candidate for secretary of state thank you so much for spending time with us this morning you bet thank you Joining us now is Debbie Kaye, the president of Portland's League of Women Voters. She's here to talk about the League of Women Voters and what they're doing to inform and empower voters in the upcoming election. On the line also is my dad's Debbie Kay. Good morning and thank you for joining us.
3: Good morning. Thank you for inviting me.
0: You've been president of the League of Women Voters for about a year. You've been a member for a long, long time. What got you engaged in the League? <laughs>
3: It's kind of a personal, funny story. My oldest friend's mother was very involved with the League uh, in the 70s and 80s. Her name was Leanne McCall. And when I returned to Portland in 1990, having grown up here, came back then uh, with my family, and Mrs. McCall said, Debbie, you must join the League of Women Voters. And so, having always done what she told me, I joined the League of Women Voters, and I'm very grateful because it gave me a marvelous opportunity to learn about my natal community as an adult and meet some extraordinary people, very, very smart, very capable, and very engaged with the uh, workings of our city.
0: And I want to plant something in your brain that I'm going to come back to in a few minutes, but I also want to plant it in Dad's brain, that we just had a chance to interview one of the candidates for Secretary of State, the Republican candidate for Secretary of State, Kim Thatcher. And and I know you all don't endorse candidates, so I won't ask uh, that specifically. But I might be interested in your thoughts about what you hope the next next Secretary of State does. So think about that for a moment. That's a teaser. Because what I want to ask, and Dad, that's also a teaser for you, because I want to talk about that in a, in a minute. Greg, pop in also. But today is the birthday of a major voting rights advocate here in Oregon, Abigail Scott Dunaway. And I think also, like last night, her brother, who was the editor of the Oregonian, who has a statue, what, in Mount Tabor, uh, got his statue toppled. He was an opponent of women's suffrage. Tell us more about Abigail Scott Dunaway, uh, any of that history that people should know or how it connects with your work.
3: Well, thanks. That's a great, fun question. Um, Abigail Scott Dunaway was an an immigrant from the East. She came over the expanse of this country um, on a wagon train and settled in the Willamette Valley. She had a great many personal challenges that i don't have memorized and i'm not going to get into them but um she felt very very strongly about women's rights and set about uh, working with people like um um, for heaven's sakes i'll get back to that uh to establish the opportunity for women to vote in oregon she ran several uh newspapers and uh, i know that her husband fell ill she was the breadwinner for the family she had a millinery shop for a while, but her life's work was really women's rights and access to
0: the vote. The League, this election cycle, what have been your top priorities?
3: Oh, my goodness. Um, certainly making sure that uh, everyone who is, can is registered. Of course, with COVID, that's presented some different challenges, but I've been thinking that the Merriam-Webster word of the Year this year should probably be pivot because everybody has had to pivot and done so um, with a remarkable amount of success. And I'm very proud of the way that we have done that as well. So we have focused um, right now especially on getting our nonpartisan information into the hands of voters. And we do that in so many ways. We do it um, online through our website, lwvpdx.org. On that website, you can find... um, a uh, print version of our well-known voter's guide, well-known in part because it nonpartisan, and it will give you the information uh, you need to be uh, an informed and uh, good voter. And we also have uh, a video voter's guide, which is interviews, short interviews individually with candidates running for local positions as well as uh, for Congress. We were focusing especially on East County and then we have uh, eight debates, four of them on ballot measures, and four of them uh, candidates running in runoff elections. And we also have a Speakers Bureau. We provide uh, balanced, neutral information, again, nonpartisan, on the ballot measures for organizations. And, of course, this year that's all being done through Zoom. And um, that is available, except for the the uh, Speakers Bureau, that's all available on the website lwzpdx.org.
0: We have said that we we think that X-Ray has done more candidate interviews than a media organization. Uh, The only, the only, well, I, I think that's true. The only organization I can think of and maybe in the modern world, there are a lot of things that are media organizations that might have us beat is in fact the League of Women Voters because you have chapters all over the state that are doing what you're doing. Do you know how many video voters guides you guys put out, you all put out?
3: The video voters' guides are done here in the greater Portland area and also um, through, uh, we work with Metro East Community Media and then also the Tualatin Valley folks. um, That uh, cable organization handles Washington and Clackamas counties. I know that they've done debates in Deschutes County, but I'm not sure uh, how many others do the video voters' guide.
0: And how many candidate interviews have you all done? Do you know, do you know how many of those Let's there are see, There were
3: 17 video voters guides. Um, then the debates were another eight. And that was just for this election. Of course, we did many, many, many more for the primary last May.
0: Well, if any of those you're wanting to be broadcast and get additional air, uh, it, wouldn't be my, it wouldn't be my decision, but I certainly know the person who be making that decision. If that's something that's interesting to you, uh, that we do are wanting to uh, make sure people have all the voter information that they can get. Uh, let me ask about, we just had a chance to talk to Kim Thatcher. As you are looking at the Secretary of State's race, what do you think Uh, voters need to have in mind? What are the ways that Secretary of State's work and League of Women Voters' work intersect most importantly?
3: They uh, they intersect most importantly around uh, access to the ballot and access to ballot information. So um, I have applauded Dennis Richardson while he was still with us, of course, for expanding the roles, the voter roles in the state of Oregon. He made it easier for people who might have missed an election or two. Uh, Unlike some states where people are kicked off the the list of eligible voters if they've missed an election or two, a famous example last spring, I believe it was in Ohio, they purged 250,000 voters. One of those was the president of the League of Women Voters of Ohio who had never missed an election in her life. So that does... Provide a great deal of concern about how voter lists called rolls are purged. So I think that is a primary uh, job of the Secretary of State. And of course, the other primary job with respect to ballots and, and uh, electing is that the safety of the ballot. So I have had the chance to um, visit the Multnomah County Elections Division twice in the last 10 years when they were counting ballots. It is an extraordinary and so secure. Process. Tim Scott is our elections director. He has spoken um, on a cybersecurity event for the League of Women Voters last fall. My gosh, it's a year ago. And he is absolutely devoted to the security of each and every ballot. It's impressive. I feel wonderful about it. And we are so fortunate in Oregon to have had vote by mail for 20 years. And it was a former Secretary of State, Phil Keesling, who helped bring that to us. And I'm forever grateful to him. And I was one of those people that my children call clipboard people. I was carrying a clipboard to secure uh, names on petitions to get us uh, vote by mail and I'm proud of it.
0: Dad, any reflections on the Secretary of State race or any question for Debbie Kay?
1: Yeah, one one quick question. The when when I was living in the in, in County, I was aware that the candidate fairs that the league had was were, were one of the most important <laughs> events in, in the election, but but years but before that, uh, my first experience uh, after I moved to Oregon permanently working was was working for Bob Strub in Bob Strub's campaign in 1966, and he was rather critical of the league because of the rules that it had then about what you could and could not do at one of the fairs, Uh, what what could be done in in the way of wearing insignia and passing out literature and so on. And I wonder, so two questions, what has COVID done to the fairs? And second, what are the rules now as to what candidates can and cannot display or do at the fairs?
3: Uh, Well, COVID, of course, has made the fairs non-existent. So, and we in Portland haven't done candidate fairs in many years, certainly not since I've been involved with the League. We have preferred doing forums um, where there's, you know, the people up on the dais answering questions and an audience um, sitting where the audience sits, writing questions on three by five cards that we then present to the candidates. Uh, as for the, the rules about what candidates may and may not wear or bring, uh, in part that depends on the venue. Um, and But the league wants everything to be as even as possible so that candidates can make their own choices. And that is the reason for those rules that um, restrict the, the button wearing and the flyers and the rest of it. All of that material can be put in a foyer, but not in the room where the fair or the debate or forum is taking place.
0: Well, Debbie K, I want to thank you so much for your role in Legal Women Voters, one of the most important organ- civil organizations that our town and our country has with such an amazing history and such a critical present. Thank you for being present with us this morning.
3: Thank you for inviting me. It was fun to talk with you both.
0: Joining us now is Alex Zelinsky, news editor of the Portland Mercury, still with us. Also, my dad, because, you know, we did news with my dad, and otherwise we would have gotten caught way too short. Alex. <coughs> Alex, how are you holding up?
4: Uh, very well.
0: Yesterday, Joanne Hardesty uh, shared a response to the allegations against former, now former uh, NAACP President Edie Mondanet. What did she have to say?
4: Yeah, um, well, for a little bit of background, uh, we put out a story last week that included several allegations of sexual and physical and psychological abuse uh, against Um, former NAACP leader and and pastor, uh, Evie Mondanay, who has been longtime friends with um, Commissioner Joanne Hardesty. Uh, Hardesty was the president of the NAACP before uh, Mondanay, and and they worked there together. After that point, they also worked on a lot of projects um, around uh, you know, within City Hall when it comes to um, improving the lives for black Portlanders and just, you know, environmental issues um, and and uh, the earthquake um, kind of conversations around restoring old buildings. Um, so when this news broke last week for Commissioner Hardesty, she, you know, it, she says it came as, Uh, it really blindsided her none of this was anything that she was she knew about her good friend and um, when we first reached out for comment last week you know she wanted to wait a bit to just let this again and and settle in and respond and and so yesterday is when she um, you know finally kind of made a public statement about it and you know it's not surprising she she um, she clearly is torn up and, and, you know, called him, called Mondane a, a brother and a friend. Um, but also said that, you know, she said, my gut is always to believe the victim and condemn the alleged abuser. Uh, to the victims, I say, I'm so sorry this happened to you. She, she did not, um, you know, step in to defend Mondane, who has denied all of these claims. She, uh, she addressed, like, the, the tricky balance of being a longtime friend to someone and not knowing this piece of them and and trying to reckon with that, but also um, not uh, gaslighting uh, uh, victims in the process. Um, And and so far, she's the only person, an elected official, who's kind of spoken out about these allegations, um, which, you know, wouldn't be that uncommon, except for the fact that Uh, Edie Mondanet has been really involved in a lot of civic issues and city policies and and programs for a while and so um, you know it's interesting it'll be interesting to see how his involvement is addressed down the road.
0: Another thing you're reporting on is the city council meeting it's already starting on this year's current budget and discussing it Uh, any further changes to police funding any other critical issues that got addressed at the city council hearing?
4: Yeah, yeah, so we're approaching um, kind of an annual check-in on this year's budget, which was initially passed in June. Um, and if you remember, it was passed with a lot of, well, a good number of cuts to, to police programs, not, not a, enough for a lot of folks, but um, it was a start. And I think there was really discussion at that time um, among city commissioners like Joan Hardesty and Commissioner Chloe Daly that, hey, these cuts, this is the first of more cuts that are coming down the line in the fall when we check in where we're, we're going to make some more cuts which is the point that we're in now um and mayor ted wheeler has released his proposed um kind of adjustments to the budget and none of them include uh, cuts or reductions to the police bureau uh, at the same time uh, commissioner hardesty and you have kind of joined together to Propose um, an 18 million reduction in the police bureau, further than what it was. You know, the cuts that were made in in June. Um, a lot of it is cut to already vacant police um, positions. A, a lot of officers resigned uh, retired <laughs> over the summer, and they uh, they, they suggest just, you know not refilling those positions and, and keeping those. Um, just getting rid of those, those salary jobs, um, and also other kind of uh, other tinkering around the edges, getting rid of the uh, two of the kind of response teams that are the most responsible for the different, um, you know, violence and response we've seen to protests by police in the past few months. Um, and, of course, I mean, it really seems like a non-starter conversation for Mayor Wheeler. I think he... He's, you know, the way he talked about reforms and cuts is very much, you know, in June he believes he made a, a, a ton of huge changes and cuts and reforms, and even at this point he's already talking about adding more money and more funds back to the police budget to help with training to make sure uh, that programs that were cut that that there are pieces of them that can be still restored, uh, especially around the the kind of gun violence work um, now that we've seen a, a spike in, in gun violence just in general um, so it's going to be next week is when, when the, the public hearing and the vote um, will go before council around these budget adjustments um, and uh, we expect it to be a little bit uh, spicy because of the really differing perspectives on police reform now um, you know uh, going into the the rest of the fiscal year.
0: Any other big budget issues you anticipate? And I say that thinking that as we discuss in the future going forward, knock on wood, the budget, I recognize that often what becomes an issue is what two members of the city council disagree upon. There might be a consensus about any number of dumb things we're doing or a consensus avoiding any number of smart things we might do. But any things that you're tracking already that you think we might need to pay attention to
4: i mean this isn't off the city council's radar at at all but the amount of funding going towards um preventing mass evictions uh once the moratorium on evictions is lifted due to coronavirus uh commissioner Daly and some folks are, are focusing on putting money towards legal defense because um, right now I mean in general whenever when anyone is evicted they have to really find their own lawyer if they want to defend themselves and um, already that's a, a kind of burden that, that is unfairly you know, borne by, by people who um, are not in a position to, to pay for a lawyer and so I think putting money towards that, putting money towards more affordable short term housing, um, I think no one um, doubts that we're headed towards a housing emergency that's that's much bigger than Portland's already
0: seen, um, and you're and saying so that, and you're right saying that because, there
4: because are some promises within the budget for that, but um, it's certainly going to be a conversation to, to watch
0: next week. And you're saying about the housing crisis, and I think what you're referring to is because the eviction moratorium is going to end, people are not going to have at this point don't have any extra stimulus money, and and right. you worry there's going to be great or a job, of people. yeah. <laughs> Or you know or a job like to pay the rent.
4: Economic crisis related to COVID really hasn't been resolved.
0: Right.
1: Um, I have a couple yeah. of questions. Go ahead, yeah. Pop. Can you hear me? Yes. I mean, I will not ask the both questions at the same time because they are very disparate. First question: an idea that's been kicking around for a while and has resurfaced is the idea of merging Portland police with the sheriff's office. And I wonder what your reading is of the discussions. How serious that might be? Is is that really a serious consideration, or is it just something to talk about?
4: It's been something that's been bounced around for a while this summer in the, um, let's see, in the mayor's office, and uh, I believe last week, city or county commissioner Sharon Myron commented on it, brought it up in a meeting. Um, uh, a lot of times people are comparing it or comparing that combination to what happened in um Camden, New Jersey, which everyone calls the Camden model, which a lot of people point to as a great example of, you know, reforming police and m- making a big change. Um to be fair, those you know what happened in Camden is very different than what would happen here. Um and if it you know if there w- was a merging of both the sheriff's and police office, there there still would be um I think it would be still really important to to talk about oversight and talk about who's in charge and who gets to make the calls And yet one concern from folks who are a little skeptical of this would be okay does that mean that that all law enforcement is just really out of our hands and it's up to the county and we have no say over kind of what's going on um are we just passing the buck uh And or is it just a symbolic gesture to move to reshuffle kind of the responsibility to make it look like there's something changing? So from what I know, it's a very early conversation and it's not really fleshed out in in many ways. I think the mayor's office is looking at a lot of different options, um, but there is not a consensus around this
2: plan at all.
0: Alex, we are we are approaching the very end of the show and still want to get a last word from Pop. I want to say thank you so much for your participation here. And by the way, congratulations again on your X-ray award. Well deserved.
4: Hey, thanks. Yeah. Have a good
0: one. Be well. Dad, we have just barely time for a straw in the wind. Straw in the wind.
1: A straw in the wind. At Oregon State University has finished, entered a contract with Starship Technologies to deliver food to students and staff by
0: drones.
1: Whoa, there's a straw in the wind. Well,
0: Pop, we did it one more time. X-ray. We're well, ready as yours. We'll be back with you on Monday. Love you, Dad.
1: Love you, too.